Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. Uh, so as we saw, we saw last week in the book of Acts chapter 4, uh, you know, the, the church in the book of Acts was the, the most dynamic, the most powerful, the most, the most influential and effective church in the history of the church. This, this group of believers who started out as just 120 uh, men and women in the upper room hiding because they were afraid of what the Jewish leaders and the Roman government would do to them, just started staying up there hiding and praying, but they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they go out and they boldly preach. And, you know, Pentecost, they get 3,000 people saved, and then a few weeks later, they get this man healed, and 5,000 people are added to the church. And then just from then on, it's just a snowball effect of just people getting saved every day in the streets and the markets and the temples, and they go out from Jerusalem. And the Bible says that this group of people literally turn the world upside down with the gospel. And they did it with no Facebook. They did it with no internet. They, did it with, they, didn't, they didn't even have electricity. They had none of the modern... They didn't even have a complete word of God. You know, we look at it and, you know, some of our, our, our most precious uh, passages that we love are in the New Testament. I love the epistles of Paul and I run to them and I, I cling to them. And I think, man, those are so encouraging. They didn't have them. They were living them. They had none of the opportunities, none of the, the advantages that we have today. But they got so much done. They accomplished more than any church in history. They were also one of the most persecuted group of believers in history. Constantly being persecuted and, and beaten and threatened to be beaten and all kinds of things happening to them, but they still continued to be devoted to the spread of the gospel. They changed the course of history, and they really only had two things at their disposal. They had prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Quick, you know, secret here. We have those same things at our disposal. It's not like they had prayer in the Holy Spirit and now it's gone and all we have is technology. No, no, no. We have everything they had plus the ability to literally get the gospel to the entire world with, with TV and radio and internet. But they were so devoted to spreading the gospel and to, to doing what God had called them to do that they, they gave their lives to prayer and being filled with the Holy Spirit. But they weren't without opposition. Sorry, I got a hair on my sleeve and it's bugging me. All right. One of April's, I guarantee you, because she loses hair like, I don't, like a sheepdog. Uh, and I can say that because she's not in here this morning. Uh, but anyway, uh, so they, they, they were devoted to prayer and, and the Holy Spirit, but they had their opposition. Now, you could say that their opposition was the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I mean, these are the men who plotted to kill Jesus. I mean, we told you about this a couple weeks ago. You know, at the, the, the resurrection of Lazarus, the incredible miracle where Jesus comes to Lazarus' grave four days after he's dead. And, you know, they're like, you know, he's been dead four days. He stinks by now, but he still, he goes to the grave. They roll the stone away. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus miraculously raises from the dead. And he's, he's completely healed and just in perfect health and perfect. And I've always felt bad for Lazarus. Because he had to die twice. I mean, think about it. He was, he was sick enough to die. He had some disease where he was sick enough to die. Now, again, back in this day, his disease was probably had a toothache. But anyway, he got sick. He got a fever. He died. And, you know, his, his pain was over. Now, he wasn't in heaven yet. He was in Abraham's bosom waiting for Jesus to die on the cross. But he knew Jesus was the Messiah. So, I mean, he gets to Abraham's bosom, the waiting place where they get to go to heaven. He thinks, you know what? Jesus is alive right now. I ain't got that long to wait. I'm good. But now he's raised from the dead. He's got he's to go to work Monday. You know, he's got to deal with his family now. I mean, I, I feel bad for Lazarus because they were like, it was over. I was never going to be sick again. I was never going to have to worry about anything again. And now I got to do it again. But then it was a great miracle. But as soon as he raises Lazarus from the dead, the very next verse after that story, the Bible says from that point on, the Pharisees and Sadducees had plotted to kill him. 
When he proved that he could, was the resurrection of life, they said, we got to kill that guy. They're the ones that had him arrested and brought him before the Roman uh, government to say, look, he says he's a king and we only have, you know, uh, G- uh, Caesar as our king. So they could have, you could say, man, they, they, they're the enemies of, of, of the church. They killed Jesus. They threatened the, the, the followers of Christ that they would do the same to them if they didn't stop preaching the gospel. Or maybe their enemy was the, the Roman government. I mean, the Roman government, they're the ones that not only allowed the crucifixion, but performed the crucifixion. It was the Roman government that had Jesus scourged with the cat of nine tails. It was the Roman soldiers that nailed him to the cross. It was the Roman soldiers that were ripping out his beard and spitting on him and put the the crown of thorns on him and were, were mocking him as he's being crucified and led through the city of Jerusalem. It was the Roman guard that pierced his his ribs through because they didn't want men to make sure he was dead. It was the Roman government who put a guard on the tomb to make sure no one stole his body. It's the Roman government that said, you can worship any God you want to worship, but if you say you worship the only true God, we're going to throw you in prison. So maybe the Roman government was their enemy. But in reality, their biggest enemy wasn't the Jewish leaders. It wasn't the Roman government. It was Satan. Satan had been trying to destroy the church before it even began. He tried to destroy the, the church before Jesus even began his earthly ministry. Remember the story? Jesus, he's baptized by John the Baptist. The, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and out of heaven a voice comes and says, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And immediately Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. And for 40 days he is Tempted by Satan. Satan trying to destroy the work of Christ before it even got going. Satan's the one that entered the heart of Judas before his crucifixion, thinking, if I can, if I can turn one of his inner circle men, if I can turn one of the twelve, I'll put doubt in the rest of them and I'll stop this movement before it even starts. He was the one, it was Satan who convinced the crowd when, when Pilate stood up there with Jesus, even after he'd been, cru- after he had been scourged and he's bloody and beaten and been humiliated. And Jesus is standing before Pilate and Pilate says, what should I do with him? It was Satan who entered the hearts of the crowd to convince him to say, crucify him and let Barabbas, a murderer, go. Satan was the one that led them to do that. Satan was the one who tried to break Peter. Remember before Jesus' crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, what's he tell Peter? He says, Peter, Satan's looking to sift you like wheat. He's looking to destroy you. It was Satan who, who tried to break Peter when he denied Jesus at the crucifixion. It was Satan that caused doubt in the heart of the apostles even after Jesus had resurrected. It was Satan who was behind the Sadducees' attempt to stop the spreading of the gospel after Peter and John had healed this man in the temple. Satan, from the, before Jesus even started his ministry, had tried and tried and tried to destroy the church from the outside. Outside, and every attempt had failed. In fact, it just made the church stronger. It just made their, them more effective, made them more powerful because they relied on God more. So at the end of Acts chapter 4, the beginning of Acts chapter 5, Satan changes his strategy. He realizes destroying the church from the inside, from the outside is not going to work. So he tries to destroy it from the inside. He tries to take apart the church from the inside. Look, Satan has a, a lot of tactics when trying to destroy the church. You know, the Bible says he's like a roaring lion. He'll try to destroy the church like a roaring lion. He'll come in 
And he tried it with the, the first church when he tells them, he has the Pharisees and the Sadducees tell them that if they don't stop preaching the gospel, they'll be beaten. So he's, he's trying to scare them and cause fear in the heart of the believers so that they'll stop, but they don't. They just keep relying on God. But he also works as a deceiving serpent. The Bible says he is a liar and a murderer. And the church has to be prepared for his attacks. So in the, the scripture we're going to study this morning, the, 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 the story we're going to look at this morning, we see a moment of failure in the first church that serves as a warning for us today. So why don't you get your Bibles open to Acts chapter 4, look at verse number 34. <clears throat> now remember, they've healed a man in the temple, they've been arrested and told to stop preaching, stop healing, or they're going to be persecuted they go back to the church they say hey this is what they said what should we do and what do they do they pray for boldness they say we're not going to stop we're going to keep going forward we're going to keep serving god we're going to keep doing what's right they pray for boldness they are filled with the holy spirit again the place is shaken and then we come to verse 34 neither was there any among them that lacked for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Now, these believers, these first believers who had just been filled with the Holy Spirit, they were incredibly generous. They shared everything. They understood that everything they had had all their, their property, all their possessions, their health that gave them the ability to go out and get a job and earn money. Everything they had was a gift from God and it was to be used to build his kingdom. What we see happening here is what Warren Worsby calls Christian communism. Don't freak out, all right? I'm not promoting communism, but he says Christian communism is different from what we think of as communism because, number one, this was voluntary. No one came to them and said, you have to sell everything you have and split up among the whole community. They were led of the Spirit to do this. Also, it wasn't done out of fear. It was done out of love. See, the gospel had loosened their grip on stuff and tightened their grip on people. And that's what... That's what happens when we are controlled by the gospel. We stop caring about our stuff and start caring more about how we can help people, how we can share the gospel, how we can love people like Jesus loved us. Because that's what Jesus did for us. You know, that's what he was Jesus. We got to understand this. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God. God the Father is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God. They are all co-equal. So Jesus is the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God. He gave that up for a little while for us. He had all the power of the Godhead in him while he was on earth, but he, he limited his ability to use it for us. The creator of the universe came into the world. And the Bible says, you know, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but he had nowhere to lay his head. When he's crucified, the only thing he had that you could call his was a coat. It had no seams. It was knit. It was, it was interesting. It was unique at that time. But he gave up everything, all his power for us. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what's happening here. Not every believer in the church sold everything they had and brought it to the apostles because not everyone could. Some people didn't have anything to sell. And I'm not telling you, my point of the message isn't go home, sell everything you have and bring me the money. If you want to do that, I'm not going to stop you. But that's not what the Bible's teaching here. So if you want to say, man, I got an extra 10 acres and I'm going to sell it and give it to the preacher. Hey, God bless you. But that's not what the Bible's teaching here. 
So I'm not going to say do that. Now, those who were able to sold what they didn't need and gave it to the work of God. It, so it's not the action we're supposed to follow. It's the spirit of generosity that we're supposed to have. See, they were spirit-led. They were led by the Holy Spirit to get rid of some things that they didn't really need, that they didn't really have use for, and get rid of that to help other people receive the gospel. So look at Acts chapter 4 again. Look at verse 36. And Joseph, who was Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, Barnabas here, he is an important figure in the book of Acts. His name literally means son of rest or son of encouragement. He is mentioned 25 times in the book of Acts. He shows up five times in the letters that Paul wrote to the other churches. So what do we know about Barnabas? We know he was a generous giver. He had this land. He sold it and gave it to the church. We know Barnabas. Barnabas is this Barnabas here. He's the one who, after Paul's conversion, you know, in Acts chapter 8, Paul gets converted on the road to Damascus. He's knocked off his donkey. He gets saved. He goes to Damascus. He's blind for three days, and the scales come off. And he is raring to go to preach the gospel. And he goes and he finds the first group of believers he can, and they are terrified of him. Why? Because three days earlier, he was killing them. So, I mean, look, that, that's understandable. If there was a, a person, I know he's dead, praise the Lord, uh, Osama bin Laden, I don't really praise the God that he's dead because he's probably in hell, and I'm going to rejoice anybody's in hell, but Osama bin Laden, he, he's, not, he's dead now, but say he's not dead. He's been spending his entire adult life trying to kill Americans and kill Christians. If he says he got saved and showed up at our church three days later, how many of y'all are going to be listening to see if he's ticking? We all are. I'm like, hey, Osama, great to have you. You can worship down in the field. We'll put a speaker out there for you. They'd be terrified of him. That, the church was terrified of Paul. Why? Because Paul had spent his entire adult life trying to kill them. You know who the first guy to accept Paul into the fellowship of the church? The first guy, when everyone hated him and everyone was scared of him, the first guy to go and hug him and say, God, Paul, I'm so... And then he was Saul. Saul, I'm so glad you got saved. Welcome to the family of God. It was Barnabas. Barnabas is the first guy to not just give it... Not generous, he's generous with the love of God. You know, Acts chapter 11. Barnabas is the pastor of the church at Antioch. You know why Antioch is important? Because they were first called Christians at Antioch. He led a group of believers who were so devoted to living like Christ that people looked at them and could tell by the way they acted, by the way they treated people, by the way they loved. Man, those people are followers of Jesus. Barnabas is the one that leads a fundraising campaign years later to give money back to the church of Jerusalem because the believers of Jerusalem are suffering. Barnabas is the one who goes with Paul on his first missionary journey. And on that journey, there's a guy with them named John Mark who fails Paul, who Paul is disappointed in because the road gets tough. And so John Mark says, this is too hard. I'm going back home. And then years later, John Mark repents of that and says, I was wrong. I want to go out and serve God. God and Paul says, I'll have nothing to do with you. You know who took John Mark under his wing to redeem him was? Barnabas. Barnabas is an incredible figure in the book of Acts. And this is the Barnabas who had a piece of land and sold it and gave it to the church. He is a generous, loving person. It's also to note that John Barnabas here, Bible tells us he's a Levite. According to Jewish law, Levites couldn't own land, but Barnabas had land. Why? Don't know. Don't really care. Not important. I look to figure out why. Most people think he just, because it also says he's from Cyprus. He had some family land in Cyprus, and so he sold that. Doesn't matter. But he had something that he really shouldn't have had, and he could have held on to it, and he could have used it and been blessed by it, but he gave it up to help others. See, 
a Barnabas, he lays down his money so he can pick people up. His life shows us that. People, everyone that the church has rejected, Saul, before he becomes Paul, Barnabas accepts him. John Mark, who is rejected by Paul, and the rest of the church is like, man, John Mark's a quitter. Barnabas helps him and encourages him. He lays down stuff so he can hold people tightly. He is a picture of a man who is transformed by the gospel. But his generosity causes a problem in the church. Look at chapter 5, verse number 1. <clears throat> but a certain man, Ananias, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. Now, a couple of things here. First of all, Ananias, the name Ananias means God is merciful. Sapphira is where we get our English word sapphire. It literally means beautiful. So I want you to look at an important word here. But a man named Ananias with Sapphira. She's part of this. His wife knew that he was selling that land to give it to the church. They sold a position, verse number two. And kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and bought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So, him and his wife get together, say, hey, we should, we should sell this land and give it to the church. And she's agreed, we should do that. But they have, they have another plot there. We should sell this land, give some of it to the church, and tell them that we're giving it all. They were both in on this. This wasn't Ananias doing something and his wife just got caught up in it. No, no, no. They had patched this plan together. Look at verse number three. <clears throat> but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thy power? Why, has you, why have you conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. So Peter, right off the bat, lets us know who's behind this deception. Who does he say is behind this? Satan. Ananias, why has Satan used your heart to lie to God? Now, this is the first post-cross appearance of Satan. Before the cross, Satan's strategy was kill Jesus. That didn't work, so now he tries to destroy his church from within. And he filled the heart of Ananias and Sapphira to lie to God and lie to the church. This is in direct contrast to what we saw in Acts chapter 4, where they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That in Acts chapter 4, when they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they are led by, controlled by the Holy Spirit. Ananias, he's led by, he's controlled by Satan. Now, what was wrong with what they did? Was it that they only gave a, a, some of the money to the church? No. Peter says, he goes, look, the land was yours. You could have done whatever you wanted to with it. Even after you sold it, the money was yours. You could have put some in a savings account, or you could have used it to, to remodel your bathroom, or you could have done whatever you wanted to do. You, it was your land, your money, to do with what you wanted to do. The problem is, you lied about what you're doing. You told us that you gave all of it when you, re, you really didn't, which is no big deal, Ananias. If you wanted, if you wanted to keep some of it back, you could have kept it. It's, it's your money. But you lied about it. The problem was they presented a gift as the full amount. The problem was they lied to Peter, they lied to the church, but more importantly, they lied to God so they could look good. They wanted to look good, so they lied about it. The problem was their pride. Let's read verse number five. <clears throat> and Ananias... Hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. I'll tell you what that means in, in you know, the Greek. It means Ananias died. Dropped dead. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. 
And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. And it was a space of about three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. Now, she knew what was done, to, what Ananias and her did. She knew that they sold the land and gave a portion of it to the church, which was not a big deal. But they lied and said, hey, we're giving all of it to the church. Because she knew they were lying to make themselves look good. She had no idea her husband was dead. She had no idea that they'd been caught in their lie. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. So when Ananias is confronted with his sin, he, he lies and immediately drops dead. Then his loving, supportive wife comes in. She has no idea what happened to him. She has no idea they know what happened. She has no idea her husband's dead and been buried. She has no idea. And so Peter says, hey, hey, uh, Sapphira, you know, Ananias told us you, you sold the land for all this much and, you know, you, you gave it uh, the whole of the church. Did that really happen? She has a choice here. She can support her husband like a good wife should, right? Submit to her loving head of the household husband and lie. Or she can be honest and say, you know what, no. We, we, we had tried to, you know, we, we did this and it was wrong. We confess it. I'm sorry. So what would you have done? Agree to misrepresent yourself? And then, you know, or would you have lied or told the truth and said, you know what, I just want to repent. But so she decides to go along with the lie, go along with the sin, and lie to Peter, the church, and to God. Look at verse number nine. Then Peter said unto her, how is it that you have agreed together? Together. They're not separate in this. Together. You have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of them which have buried your husband are at the door and shall carry you out. Then she fell down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young man came in and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and upon many uh, as heard these things. So she, she continues to lie, drops dead. Again, I feel bad for these guys too. They just got buried, you know, done burying her husband. They think they're done for the day. They're coming in tired, want some water, walk in and like, there's another dead one? Come on, Peter. So they got to go take her out and bury her. But she continues with the lie, continues with the sin, drops dead. And great fear comes across it. Now, I want to answer a few questions about this text before we start getting to the points. So I want to answer some of them that I've had, I'm sure you had. So why did Ananias and Sapphira do what they did? Why did they lie? I mean, Ananias, he, he started it. Sapphira, she's, she's confronted. She has given a chance to tell the truth. She's given a chance to confess her sin, repent, and get right with God. So why did they do what they did? Their lies revealed a deeper problem. And they are in direct contrast to Barabbas. Or Barnabas, I'm sorry. Barabbas is the bad guy. Barnabas. They're in direct contrast to Barnabas. Barnabas had no... He didn't care about stuff. He cared about people. He wanted to help people. He wanted to help encourage and strengthen people. He had a love of God and a love of people. Ananias and Sapphira had some loves too. They loved money and they loved appearances. They cared more about what people thought of them than what was actually going on in their heart. George MacDonald said half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what you are not. They're the opposite of Barnabas. He was filled with the Spirit and gave his stuff away. They are filled with the love of money and the praise of man. So they lied about how generous they were so that people would praise them. Their, their problem wasn't that they lied. Their problem was they were so filled with pride, they became hypocrites. Hypocrisy is deliberate deception. It's trying to make people think 
that you're something that you're not. We talked about this several years ago when we were looking at the Sermon on the Mount. The, the Greek word for hypocrite is the Greek word Hippocrates. And it literally talks about actors. Because in those days, actors would put on a mask to try to be something that they were not. That's what Ananias and Sapphira were. They were showing people that they were one thing when they were really something drastically different. Now, in their case, they wanted the people, they wanted people to think that they were more spiritual and more generous than they actually were. So they, they were so filled with self, they had no room for God to fill them with His Spirit. You are either filled with the Spirit of God, which will bring satisfaction or joy, or you are filled with yourself and Satan, and that will leave you dissatisfied, jealous, and a hypocrite. So why did God kill them? Does everyone who's a hypocrite get killed by God? No, or this church would be empty. Because we'd all be dead. If you didn't catch that, me too. So God doesn't kill every hypocrite in the church. There's room for all hypocrites in the church. So why did God kill these people? Now, there's a couple reasons. <clears throat> One thing you've got to understand. We are in the beginning of a new chapter in the history of salvation. Jesus has died. He has been buried. He has risen from the grave. He's ascended to heaven. He has given the Holy Spirit, and He has started the church. This is a brand new chapter in God's work on earth. And whenever God begins a new period on His work on earth, He's always very strict on sin. Remember in the Old Testament, the temple is erected. They finish the temple, and Nathan, not Nathan, I'm sorry, uh, Nahum and Abijah, Nadab and Abijah, they present false fire before God. Remember what God does to him? He kills him. Sends fire through the temple to burn them up. Now, since that time, since God killed Nadab and Abijah for giving false fire, nothing ever bad happened in the temple again. No one is ever crooked or no one was shading the temple. No. The temple, from, from, from all of the temple in the tabernacle's history was filled with people who were corrupt and sinners and, I mean, all kinds of wickedness. I mean, during this time, the people would, the Levites, the priests, the, the people who ran the temple, they would, would, would have prostitutes in, in the temple. But God didn't kill them. Why? Because he was, he was starting something new and wanted to show the severity of their sin. Remember that when they entered the promised land? Remember, sorry, they entered the promised land and they defeat uh, uh, Jericho and God tells Israel don't take anything from Jericho somebody does remember that story uh, Achan takes the accursed thing and sins found out and what happens to Achan and his family and his goats and his dog they're stoned and burned God's showing how serious sin is. Right when they end of the problem, they, they come out of Egypt, and they go to Mount Sinai, and Moses is on top of Mount Sinai, getting the Ten Commandments from God, just starting a new chapter in his work in the, on the world with Israel. And Moses comes down, and Israel's down there, worshiping a golden calf. And so 3,000 people are killed because they, they violated the Word of God. See, we talked about this before. The signs in the book of Acts that the apostles were able to have, the signs that Jesus performed, the miracles Jesus performed, they were miracles meant to prove that God was real and God was working to the unsaved world. What's happening here is a glimpse of what the future judgment will be for everyone who has the heart of Ananias and Sapphira. He is warning the church, hey, yes, I, I saved you, I gave you the Spirit of God, but I take sin seriously. So that leads us to the third question, the one we're going to spend the most time on. 
What is God trying to teach us in this? And when I say most time, I mean next five minutes because i got to hurry up. Uh, I'm trying not to keep you all here too long. So what is God trying to teach us in this? First, a few things. Number one, he's trying to teach us there are two types of people in the church. Next slide. There we go. There are two types of people in the church. In the church today. In our building today, we have two types of people. We have some Barnabases. Barnabai. I don't know. We have some people who, man, they love God. They want to help people. They want to serve God. They want to build us again. Man, they love God. We've also got some Ananiases and Sapphires. Some people who look like they're one thing, but they're not. They're something else. They look like Barnabas. They're active in the church. They're generous. But deep in their heart, there's pride, there's love of money, and there's love of praise. That's a problem in every church in the world. There are genuine people who love God, who love people, and there are people that, that look the part, but their heart's full of Satan. It's not that they're not saved, but they're not filled with the Spirit either. They're filled with self. John Newton, of course, the author of Amazing Grace, he said, we are great imitators, mimicking the motions the words, but often from a heart that is not converted because we've never repented of our idolatry to money and praise. See, a lot of people in the church, they learn to imitate what it looks like to love God. They imitate a, an experience. They imitate, the, we know the word. If you've grown up in church, you know the language. You know what to say to make people think, I'm praying for your brother. Or let just the Holy Spirit fill me. You know how to look the part. But you're not actually the part. You're a hypocrite. You're trying to be one thing when you're actually something else. So how can you tell which one you are? How can you tell if you're a Barnabai or a Sapphirae? How can you tell what you're like? See, Ananias and Sapphira, they knew their lies. They knew what they were doing. They knew their heart was full of pride. They knew their heart was full of hypocrisy. They confessed one thing, but they had hidden things in their heart. Again, back to, to Achan, after the battle of Jericho. You know, after the battle of Jericho, God tells them, don't touch anything. They, he does. He takes some silver and some, some, uh, some gold and some, some clothes, and he buries it in his tent. Nothing happens. They go to Ai. Ai is a little village. You know, Jericho is the, the biggest city in the promised land. Most fortified city in the world, and... They, they destroy that like that. So they go to Ai, a little village, and they're like, this is going to be nothing. They don't even send the whole army. But they're defeated, and, you know, I think 40 men die. So Joshua goes to God and says, God, what's going on? God says, you're sending the camp, and I'm not going to go through the whole process, but how he figures it out, how he finds out it's Achan. And he comes to Achan and says, Achan, what did you do? Now, Achan looked like every other soldier. His tent looked like every other tent but he had sin buried in it he knew it was there but from the outside it looked just like everybody else see from the outside Achan looked like everybody else but he had sin buried in his tent so you have to ask yourself what's buried in your tent I can't see it no one else can see it but you know it's there what, what sin do you have hidden that you you want to keep hidden because I like it too much. I'm going to keep doing what I want to do and others can, they think I look like something, but I'm not. So is what you seem to be backed up by what you actually are or do you have hidden things? If your life doesn't back up with your mouth says, your life is a better testimony of your heart. Second thing God's trying to teach us here, number two, you cannot hide your sin from God. You can't. You can hide your sin from me. You can hide your sin from your spouse. Kids, you can hide your sin from your parents. You can hide your sin from the entire world. You cannot hide it from God. God, and look, it's not just the sin we commit. Because look, my kids, they know I'm going to catch them. Because I pray every single day 
God, help me catch my kids when they do wrong. And I do. And usually I catch them because they're dumb. I'll just, I'll just go in there, grab their phone. You want to talk about this? I'm so sorry, Dad. I have no idea what they did. But they think I do. And now I'm telling Connor my secret. So, but, you know, they don't know I know what they did. But they tell me what they did anyway because I tell them I know what I did, what they did. But also, I, have, I do know what they do because I have so many filters and stuff on their phones. I know everything they do. And sometimes I can just tell. They can, they can walk into a room and they just have that. You, you parents ever know? Your kids just look guilty. And you're like, all right, time to start doing some investigation because they did something. It's like my dog, Scarlett, who's the best dog in the world. I know when she gets on the counter and eats food because she looks guilty. As soon as I see her looking guilty in the living room and licking her lips, I'm like, oh, somebody left something on the counter, and there goes the pizza because the dog got it. Uh, I just know she's guilty. I can know when my kids are guilty. But I'm sure there are things that they've done that I don't know about. Right, Connor? Ha <laughs> good answer, son. <laughs> good answer. There are things they've done I don't know about. There's nothing they've done that God doesn't know about. There's nothing I've done God doesn't know about. There's no thought I have God doesn't know about. You know, God can view your thoughts like they're a big TV screen over your head. God knows what you think. Look, there's a, a, a track, a chick track, which was very theologically incorrect. Called This Was Your Life, I looked at years ago. Uh, I mean, talking years and years and years ago. Well, this guy dies and he stands before God and God shows his entire life on a big TV screen for the whole in population of heaven to see. That's not going to happen. All right? Now, you will stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ. Not the great right throne. The judgment seat of Christ and you will be judged for your deeds for God. Don't think you're going to pass that. Bible says, as a point of a man wants to die, then the what? Judgment. You're going to be either judged for what you did with God or what you did without God. But we as believers, we're going to be judged too. Not as severely, praise the Lord, but still judged. But anyway, God knows what your thoughts are. God knows your heart. How would, how would you like if you came into church one day and I said, hey, you know, God gave us this new technology. We're going to, we're going to look at everybody's thoughts from this week. How many of y'all would, would break the projector? Me, I'd be the first one to be like, oh, look, it fell. Darn. But God sees them. God knows them. The Bible says we are naked and open before him. We know that theologically. But do we, do we think about that when we're by ourselves or thinking no one's going to find out? You know, do we think about that when, and, uh, and me and April haven't done this for years because we drive separate to church now because I get here early. But when we were first, you know, married or we had kids or in church, especially when I was on deputation and we would travel around trying to raise support, we would pull into a church parking lot and we had been fighting like ain't nobody's business. You know, we didn't have arguments. We had knocked down, shingle rattling, window pulling, you know, we had fights. And we'd pull in there just, as soon as the door opened and our foot hit that church parking lot, hey, brother, how you doing? Y'all never did that, right? Yeah, right. God saw that fight. God, you know, we, we need to think about, you know, now what we're doing, God sees us. See, Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't think about it. They thought they could hide their heart from God. The Bible says that all, one day all hidden things will be revealed. We know that. But they were so consumed with the praise of men that they never cared if they were right with God. You know, a lot of church people were deceived by Satan. We are so consumed by our appearance to the world that we neglect our heart with God. I can't see in your tent, but God can. So be careful what you try to keep hidden. Third thing we need to know, great grace means of, that our offenses before God are greater. To paraphrase Spider-Man, with great grace comes great responsibility. As God moves in your life, as God gives grace and forgiveness and mercy 
sin becomes magnified. And God does it so that we can see our sin, repent of our sin, confess our sin, and get right with Him. He doesn't do it so we can ignore it and continue living in our sin. When God's Spirit moves in our heart, we cannot continue to live in sin and not offend the holiness of God. Because we've been given so much grace, when we sin against God, it is offensive to His holiness. Fourth thing we've got to notice, fear is a part of worship. Now that may seem strange. Why would God want us to fear Him? But look at how many times fear is mentioned in this passage. Look at verse number 5. Uh, chapter 5, verse 5. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came upon all them that heard these things. And look at verse number 11. Uh, and great fear came upon all the church and upon many as heard these things. What was, what was the result of all this fear? Look at verse 14. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both men and women. The church feared the holiness of God, so they got busy witnessing for God, and the church grew and grew and grew. Yes, God is love, but you can only know that love as you know His glory and power. See, biblical fear is all mixed with intimacy. When we worship, we come into the presence of a holy God. God is holy, and he, as we fear Him, it should cause us to confess our sin, repent of our sin, and do everything in our power to be with Him. As fear of God increases, so does the sense of His love. You know, what an amazing grace. The song says, "'Tis grace that taught my heart to what? Fear. And fear, that grace my fears relieve. Fear is a part of worship. Fifth thing I want to notice, and last thing. Number five, sin is deadly serious to God. Look, let's be honest here. How many of y'all read this story, see what God does to Ananias and Sapphira, and think, that's a bit extreme? I do. I do it all the time in the Bible. When I see God kill 3,000 people in Mount Sinai, when I see, you know, when the, the leaders of Israel rise up against Moses and so God opens up the earth and swallows 250 of them straight to hell, I'm like, that's a bit of an overreaction, don't you think, God? That seems pretty severe. Oh, you know, I'm going to destroy the entire world except Noah and his sons and their wives. Wow, that's pretty, that's pretty strong. But God is telling us that sin is deadly serious. You know, C.J. Mahoney, he said, if we are offended by the swift judgment of God described here, he's talking about this passage here, it reveals our ignorance of God's holiness, our sinfulness, and the seriousness of our sin in relation to our holiness. You know what he's saying here? We shouldn't worry, we shouldn't wonder why did God kill them. We should wonder, why hasn't God killed me? Because I'm, I'm way worse than them. So why is God merciful to me? R.C. Sproul says, God is indeed long-suffering, patient, and slow to anger. In fact, he is so slow to anger that when his anger does erupt, we are shocked and offended by it. We forget rather quickly that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance to give us time to be redeemed, instead of taking advantage of this patience by coming humbly to Him for forgiveness, we use this grace as an opportunity to become bolder in our sin. We delude ourselves into thinking that either God doesn't care about it or that He is powerless to punish us. The supreme folly is that we think we will get away with our revolt. You, here's the thing, you can go out this afternoon and you can sin... And God probably won't strike you dead. You're not going to get struck by lightning. Fire's not going to come down from heaven and consume you. You're going to sin, and you may get away with it. You didn't get away with it. God's just merciful. 
But here's the thing. God's merciful because he wants you to confess your sin, repent, and get back with him. If you think, nothing happened, I can keep going. God may let you go a little further, a little further, a little further, but eventually, God's judgment's going to come. God will judge you. Look, and oh, does God kill people who continue to live in sin? Yeah. Sometimes people die early because they continue to sin against God, refuse to repent, their hearts are seared, and God says, you know what? You're doing more harm to the cause of Christ than good. Time to come home. Sin will destroy. And look, he may not kill you, but he may ruin your marriage. May ruin your, your family. Sin always brings forth death. That's what God's trying to remember us. So if we, if Jesus went through the crucifixion to save us, and we don't take sin seriously, how can we stand before God? The other Hebrew says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? What he's saying there is, how can we stand before a holy God when we accept his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for our sins? We accept what he went through on the cross and the scourging. We accept it for salvation and live for ourselves. How can we stand before God? So here's a question this morning. Are you pretending to be more spiritual than you actually are? Are you being a hypocrite? And let me answer that for you. Yeah. Because we all are. Question is, how serious is it? How big of a hypocrite are you being? You know, would we say, we say that Jesus is our Lord, but does our life back it up? What is really in your heart is more important than how you look on the outside. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.